Hello, I'm Hannah Critchlow, and in this special Naked Neuroscience episode, we'll be exploring morality and motivation in Milan. Would you kill one person to save five others? Does religion evade morality by omission? And how can you tweak people's motivations? We'll be stripping down breaking hot neuroscience research at the Federation of European Neurosciences 2014 Forum, including finding out how moral values are contagious. By interacting with you, my values will shift a little bit towards your values. And this seems to happen implicitly, automatically. Asking if we could analyse Hitler's genetic fingerprint or his DNA could have predicted his motivation, sense of reward and punishment. I don't think we'll ever get to a point where you can say, well, this is what somebody's genes are and therefore they are this kind of person. And could we ever use neuroscience to create a conscious computer? This is one scientist's childhood fantasy. I dreamed of being able to make computers that were as intelligent as people. First up, let's question our morals. Imagine the scenario. There's a runaway trolley barreling down the railway tracks. Ahead on the tracks, there are five people tied up and unable to move. The trolley is headed straight for them. You are standing some distance off next to a lever. If you pull this lever, the trolley will switch to a different set of tracks. Unfortunately, you notice that there is one person tied up on the side track. So you have two options. One, do nothing and the trolley kills the five people on the main track. Or two, pull the lever, diverting the trolley onto the side track, or it will kill just one person. Which is the correct choice? I put this question to Ray Dolan, Professor of Decision Making at University College London. What I would do, I could say, well, I'm going to do this, but I might do something very different in the heat of the moment. Probabilistically, what I would do is probably do nothing. I think that is the case also for the majority. So five people may die, and the one person who you could have run over will survive. Whether we act or don't act is very much influenced by the consequence of our action. And if the consequence of our actions or the outcome is bad, we are more disposed not to act than to act. So that's a basic tendency. So that would tell me that on average the majority of people would do nothing. Now, I was brought up a Catholic and we learned the distinction between two types of sins. Sins of omission and sins of commission. It's an interesting distinction because here I have to a choice between omission, don't do anything, which is a minor sin, commission is a more active sin. So I think the fact that that's there in sort of Catholic sort of ethical teaching reflects a wider kind of truth that to do things through action usually carries a greater social sanction than to do something through inaction. I think society at the moment thinks you will not be blamed for doing nothing, whereas if you switch the lever and run over somebody, well, they might, somebody is going to blame you. And do we know much about what's going on in the brain whilst we're making these very difficult moral decisions? People are beginning to study it, and there are lots of surprising findings. You know, we've been doing work on pain. We're kind of very counterintuitive findings. So let me give you just a, a brief summary, and this is work done by somebody called Molly Crockett in the lab. So she's been looking at the issue of if I'm given amount of money and I'm going to get pain. 
but I'm also given an amount of money that that same amount of money can buy you out of pain, the same pain as I'm getting that hurts you just as much as it hurts me. The question is, will I pay the same amount of money to avoid one unit of pain for myself as I would for you? Turns out that, and this is a very robust finding, that I'm more likely to pay twice or three times as much for you to avoid pain than for me to avoid the same level of pain. Now that's a level of altruism that's totally unpredicted, totally surprising. And this is somebody you will never ever meet again. So there's no social consequence, no reputation to yourself. We make that quite explicit. That's quite a surprising finding, as you say, for someone to be that altruistic to a stranger in such a capitalist society that we now live in. Can you explain why people seem to make those decisions in this experimental paradigm and whether it actually, do you think, translates into real life? I mean, that's always a question about whether these things translate outside a laboratory setting. Very hard to do naturalistic studies. But I think the findings are so robust and so replicable across individuals that I think there will be a very strong residue. And I think you have to invoke almost something like an evolutionary argument here that, in fact, there is a great advantage to us in general or in the long run being helpful and good to others. And I think a lot of morality arises out of a framing of, of this truism within a more formal notion of you will go to heaven or go to hell. Uh, but these truths were around long before religion. If I help you, that's going to be money in the bank, sort of moral money, when I need help in the future. And I will see that it's to my advantage. And I subscribe quite strongly to the view that in every moral act, in every altruistic act, there's also a selfish component. So selfishness is not such a bad thing sometimes, because my selfishness will mean that I'm prepared to invest and invest quite heavily in the well-beings of others because their well-being may well be my well-being in the future. So do we have kind of ingrained in our neural circuitry um, a, a basic concept of karma, that what goes around comes around, and it may be that we give to a stranger, but then another stranger will return to us something that we value? Yeah, these type of sort of um, deep causal type of explanations are very difficult to prove or disprove, as you can imagine. And all you can do is get sort of residues of evidence that would be supportive of that. I suspect that over the scale of evolution, that the types of behavior that have been selected for will incorporate these type of altruistic behaviors because they are in our own interest uh, in, in, in the long term. So you have to have a, a long horizon here. So I think they are probably wired into our better natures. And is there any evidence that other animals uh, also exhibit this altruistic behavior in societies? There's some very famous, albeit controversial, experiments, and I think some of the most famous involve experiments of the rats, whereby a rat, given a choice of pushing a lever to get food or pushing a lever to diminish shock to a confederate who it can see in an adjacent cage will actually choose to push the lever to reduce 
the pain. There's lots of anecdotal stuff as well, you know, f in relation to dolphins, for example. Interesting anecdotes of dolphins gathering in a group to keep a person afloat who's in danger of drowning. You know, many, many stories like that. So I think there is, it would be peculiar if there was particular evolutionary pressures that were unique to humans. This must have been unique to all sentient beings. And are there any groups of humans who don't seem to exhibit this altruistic type of behaviour that you've been studying? So, for example, maybe particular patient groups or maybe groups of people with particular political views? Yeah, so uh, where do we start? Um, the Tea Party? I, the, the answer is almost certainly the case. So that any human trait, be it height, eye colour, skin colour, there's a, there's a range. That applies also to behavior. The degree to which you will startle is a distribution. Some people startle more easily, some people less. So how would you recognize somebody who didn't give a damn about the pain, who wouldn't pay a penny back to the experiment I described? They wouldn't pay a penny to reduce your pain, but they'd pay a lot to reduce their own pain. Well, that might bring up the picture of a sociopath or people who have got psychopathic behavior, who can be extremely cruel to other people. And I think the interest of these experiments goes very much to the heart of those problems. How can we understand other people's behaviors when they seem so extreme? And, you know, I've been working on this across a number of different domains and we're now beginning to think about applying it in more sort of clinical context to try to solve these sort of problems. So if we just take something like psychopathy, so some, where somebody can be very cruel to others, total disregard for their pain, is that due to a biological, a biological problem such that they cannot represent the states of others. In other words, their sentient feeling states. Or is it just that they don't actually feel the negative value of pain? Is it that they're just not so receptive to pain? Yeah, they're very receptive to their own pain. They will. But not to other people's. To other people's pain. So it's very much to do with representations for others. And something I'm going to talk a little bit about today is another study where we've done something that suggests that if I interact with you, for example, and I have just learned about your values, and I have a set of values for that particular context myself, by interacting with you, my values will shift a little bit towards your values. And this seems to happen implicitly, automatically. And that's where I have to make decisions for me, make decisions for you. I have to learn your values in these contexts, but in the process of interacting with you, my evaluations shift towards yours. So we've seen that behaviorally. We've got a neurobiological accounting of this. It happens automatically. It seems to happen in everybody. We tend to have a moral stance with people who are bad like that. But in fact, it may be that they are victims of a biological development that has gone awry for whatever reason. That may not be just programmed into their genes, it could be something like their early environment, etc. And so there may be a point where you can actually diagnose sociopathy more accurately based on these types of experimental paradigms and also the brain imaging studies that you're looking at in, and getting to grips with these very moral questions. And perhaps early on, if you understand its biology, you might be able to come up with interventions that can actually change that because in the studies I've described we see what I call plasticity 
things change on the basis of experience. You may be able to teach people, understand its biological realization. Then you're in a better position to come up with treatments that are rational and that are focused on what the problem is. What we have at the moment is a range of ad hoc treatments that generally don't work. And then I suppose also if, if you're surrounded by people that have good, as they're perceived, moral values, then you were just saying that your own moral values will shift more towards theirs. So that's a form of therapy that might be available to those that may have experienced early insult during their childhood or trauma, which may have somehow tweaked or shifted their moral values in a direction that isn't quite so socially acceptable. Yeah, I think that's right. And so we learn an awful lot, not we learn through our own experience, but we learn a hell of a lot through observing others, uh, absorbing their behavior, making inferences about what it is that accounts for their behavior. Oh, that person doesn't do that because that can hurt somebody. And so knowing what is the correct type of environment uh, for people to flourish and to nurture people is becomes very, very important because we can specify in a much more precise way. And then if you take that into a therapy, you can then set up much better therapeutic environments because you know what the key ingredient is. Not only do you know what it is, but you can actually monitor it as it goes along. You can have a measure of whether this is working or not. Right now, we don't have anything like that because we don't even understand what this core problem is in many of these situations. And going back to the point now of religion, do you think that as less people in Europe, uh, or in the UK certainly, are Catholic or have a particular religion that they really believe in, do you think that's going to cause the moral degradation of society? My own views, I don't think religion insulates you from bad behaviour. In fact, you can make a very powerful argument that religion has been the engine of an awful lot of terrible behavior, both in the past and today. You know, why people will... So I don't think religion necessarily is a good soil for people to develop moral values, despite the claims of religion. I would say the evidence from history is that it's had a very detrimental effect. You know, I grew up in a very religious family. I grew up in a Catholic family, and did that make me a better person? I don't know. The one thing I did learn, those some very fine-grained moral distinctions, fundamental, back to what you asked me about at the beginning, the trolley car problem. I, I think at the age of nine or ten, I was very aware of the distinction between sins of omission and sins of commission. So I learned a very fine-grained sort of way of thinking about the world. But knowing that, I'm not certain it helped me to be a better or worse person necessarily. So fear of hell didn't ever stop me doing some very naughty things. Thanks to Ray Dolan, Professor of Decision-Making and Neuroimaging at University College London. Next, we delve deeper into the brain to uncover punishment, reward and motivation with Dr. Honecker Dan Alden at Radbund University, the Netherlands. So, so I was watching the, the football match last night, I'm Dutch, and so the Dutch were playing Costa Rica, and when the Dutch finally won the penalty series, you could see them all kind of jumping around, and then when you looked at the Costa Ricans, they were just like rooted to the spot, they were just not moving at all, and that, that really nicely reflects that link between kind of good stuff and kind of being really active and, and punishment and being really inhibited, like being really, like stopping your behavior. 
And so we actually study this process. We study how rewards on the one hand and punishments on the other hand really can influence your behavior in a way that you, that you might not be aware of, unlike probably in the football match where they probably are quite aware of, <laughs> of what is happening. So I'll give you an analogy of the experimental design that we actually do in the lab. So suppose you're thinking about buying a house and you're going for a viewing. On the wall in the house, there's a picture and this picture just happens to be the same picture as the one that was hung up in the ice cream shop in the neighborhood where you grew up. So you probably have a very, very strong, positive feeling when you see this picture. You might not actually be aware of this. And so you might actually end up being more likely to buy this house because this picture is hanging there. Even if you know that you know, the owner is going to take the picture with him when they're leaving, the opposite actually might happen. Maybe there's a picture hanging on the wall that used to hang in the headmaster's office where you had to write your lines when you'd been naughty in class. And so you, know, you have a very kind of negative association with this picture. And so you might actually not buy the house. And you might really not be aware of, of this influence that that picture has on you. Again, you know, the picture is going to go away with the owner, so it doesn't affect the value or it shouldn't affect the value of the house to you. But instead, it does actually influence you. And so what we do is we kind of create a very similar situation in the lab where we actually show people pictures and in some cases have them followed by, uh, by a very nice sip of, um, of juice that we give them. These are thirsty people. And we show them other pictures and then we give them a sip of really nasty magnesium sulfate solution. And so what we then do is we see how when we show these pictures in the background of another game that people are playing when really the picture shouldn't be affecting their behavior, whether it actually affects their behavior. And so what we see is that when you show people the kind of nasty picture in the background, people are really inhibited in their responding. Whereas if you show people the nice picture, or the one that's associated with the nice fruit juice, people actually activate their responding, so they get like really active. And are there different types of genes or chemicals in the brain that somehow regulate how we can respond to these positive or negative kind of pictures or associations? Yeah, so that's exactly what we are interested in studying. What we've actually seen is that there is this one neurochemical called serotonin, which seems to be particularly associated with how people respond to negative events, to punishments. And so when you actually lower people's levels of serotonin, they actually become, in this case, more likely to buy the house. So they, they're sort of disinhibited in their responding to an aversive stimulus. And serotonin is usually associated with, so people, for example, who may have clinical depression would be given serotonin-selective reuptake inhibitors, which would increase their amount of serotonin to try and make them happier. But your results are also showing that serotonin has this other flip side. This is exactly kind of the confusion that drove our research. Because on the one hand, people who are depressed and who seem to be more sensitive to punishments have lower levels of serotonin, or we think that they might do. And on the other hand, people who have impulse control disorders, you know, people who basically seem to not take into account that their behavior is going to be bad consequences. So they seem to be less sensitive to aversive outcomes. And that was really confusing. How can two disorders that are both associated with low levels of serotonin, on the one hand, seem to more 
sensitive to, to punishment and on the other hand less sensitive to punishment. And so in another study we looked at genetic differences in people's serotonin um, system and one of the serotonin genes and actually showed that people respond differently to punishment depending on which version of this gene. Some people became really very much more sensitive to punishment whereas other people when they just received a punishment they just don't seem to mind quite as much and they just kind of carry on what they were doing for regardless. Do you think we'll ever get to the stage where we could, I don't know, maybe take some of Hitler's DNA, for example, and have a look at his serotonin genes and then find out whether he might be affected by this kind of punishment paradox? So, so that's an interesting question. There are definitely some kind of predispositions that we have when we have particular versions of the gene. But actually for this specific gene, it's already known that, it, that the effects of the gene also very much depend on what's happened to you in your life life events, something really bad happening to you might, for example, cause your serotonin levels perhaps to drop. This is, this is again, quite speculative. And that might actually interact with the genes that you have. And so it will be very difficult to say when we, and I don't think we'll ever get to a point where you can say, well, this is what somebody's genes are and therefore they are this kind of person. But it really depends on the kind of the environment that you're in, which interacts and all kind of come together in your brain to make your act the way you do. Thanks to Honika Den Alden, who researches reward and punishment at Radboud University, Netherlands. And closing today's exploration of morality and motivation. During the opening ceremony of the FENS meeting, I caught up with Joshua Brown. He's a computer scientist and engineer at Indiana University, America. He models what happens in our brains when we make a mistake and how we experience disappointment when we find ourselves in unexpected situations. In general terms, we form expectations every day about the kinds of things that I think will happen based on what we know about the world. You know, for example, if you are meeting with someone, you might expect certain things will happen. And if they don't happen, you experience some kind of disappointment. Or, or likewise, if you are doing something and you make a mistake, you recognize that something's gone wrong because you first have an expectation about how things should work. And so what we've done is to take a lot of neuroscience data about this phenomena of forming expectations, then evaluating whether what happens is consistent with your expectations or whether there's a surprise. What we've developed a model of is how the particular regions of the brain, the, the anterior cingulate, so that's the part that's just uh, directly above the middle of your eyes and back a, a few centimeters. And we built a model in a way that captures a lot of different cognitive neuroscience data, functional MRI, monkey neurophysiology, human electrophysiology, that is the voltages off the scalp. And we've developed a model that can account for all these different kinds of data. And so that's really the approach I've taken. Rather than trying to sort of work out a proper definition of what is prediction, what is risk, what is what does it mean to have that experience of oops, something went wrong or something unexpected happens. Rather what I've done is to simply look at the neural circuits and meet them on their own terms and ask how do we get uh, systems of interacting cells to produce the kinds of signals that we observe to be associated with forming predictions about what's going to happen and evaluating whether something unexpected happens. Where that's gotten us now is to a model, uh, we have several models, one more recently, that 
accounts for a lot of the neuroscience data. And it turns out that the, the mechanisms that we've uncovered are surprisingly simple, um, at least conceptually, in that there are really two parts to, to the process. And the first is forming predictions, which in the simplest sense, the more strongly you predict a particular outcome, the more cell activity you have associated with that prediction. And then when it comes to detecting surprises, really all we had to do was to take the difference, that is the subtraction uh, between the predictions that were represented and the actual outcomes. And so whenever you have a mismatch, uh, then that difference is larger. And, and that larger difference constitutes this prediction error signal or the surprise. So in a sense, what we found is that when we wade through all this complexity and all this large corpus of neuroscience data, we can organize a lot of it with surprisingly simple principles. And there are certain human brain conditions, like for example schizophrenia, where scientists have theorized that there's a difference between prediction and actual reality, which, and those differences might lead on to the delusions and hallucinations that these patients experience. So can your computer model help to somehow help us to understand more about these patients' conditions and maybe come up with a treatment? Um, that's a great question. The first thing I can say is that we have, in fact, done some of that. So uh, a few years ago, we did a study of schizophrenia, and what we found is that when you look explicitly at how individuals with schizophrenia form predictions and how they evaluate their own predictions, what we found is that they often get things backwards. The things that are less likely to occur, we found that their brain activity showed stronger activity. In other words, they were predicting more. And the things that were more likely to occur, they seemed to predict less. Because those were sort of malfunctioning, that means that the outcome evaluations, that is the surprise that was detected, was not really consistent with reality. And so in that sense, we traced some of the dysfunction portion of the problem in schizophrenia back to a problem with learning how to accurately predict the world and what will be the consequences of your actions and of other people's actions. In essence, then, part of the problem is individuals with schizophrenia have great difficulty learning how the world works. And, and how they work within the world. We were able to see that at the neural level in a way that we can now account for with the same computational neural model. And we've also done other studies with drug addiction, looking at how our model can make sense of what's going on in the brains of individuals who are dependent on drugs. And what we find is, again, that there are systematic differences in how people with drug addiction predict the consequences of their actions, um, the risks, and, and also the rewards. And there are others with obsessive compulsive disorder, for example, there seems to be an overprediction of outcomes, and especially negative outcomes, in a way that's not consistent with reality. And so, subjectively, people experience this kind of anxiety, uh, you know, the, the obsessions or the, the compulsions, as if there was some bad consequence that was going to happen. And, and that leads to all sorts of behavior that's either unnecessary or, at best, inconsistent with the needs of the actual environment. So your computational model has really taught us more about how humans behave and 
how we recognise particular errors that we might make in our own judgment. Um, I don't know whether you've seen the film uh, Her with Scarlett Johansson in it where she's an operating software queen who has lots of relationships with men. She must have some intuition about how they value things and how they notice reward and recognise errors in order for her to communicate with them within this film. Um, do you think that your computational model might help to develop software that's similar to that? Well, I think if you look at how the her, not sure whether to call it a her or a computer or what, how that's depicted in the film, there's a huge range of cognitive processes. Um, there's sort of processes related to empathy and social cognition and language. And in, in one sense, what we've done is to isolate a small part of cognition, um, a small but I think important one. Now, every model, whether I build it or someone else builds it, every model is by definition a simplification. So I'm certainly not going to claim that I have some model that's approaching some something of the complexity of, of her. But I think we have sorted out a piece of it. And I think with the kinds of things that we've developed and that other people have developed, I think it will be possible to put those pieces together into a larger functioning system. And I think down the road it's going to be increasingly possible to build systems that appear more human-like. In fact, nowadays if you make a phone call to a large corporation, you're likely to speak to a, a robot, essentially a computer. Even in my lifetime, those processes have gotten a whole lot better. They're getting better at recognizing speech, better at responding in a way that sounds more natural or human-like. You know, even recently, there's been talk of machines being able to pass the Turing test, and that is to fool people into thinking that the machines really are other people. And I think we are approaching that point. That's all we have time for today, unfortunately. Thanks to Ray Dolan, Honika Dan Alden and Joshua Brown. I'll be back again tomorrow to investigate the importance of sleep. So, have you ever been up all night partying and then crashed out completely the next day? That's your brain sleep bank getting out of the red and making up your lost sleep credit. We'll discover the sleep brain bank in Fruit Flies. Except we don't keep them awake all night partying. It's more sort of a zero dark 30, if you've seen that movie about torture in Iraq. It's, it's more that approach, forced sleep deprivation, like uh, the Secret Service would do. Poor fruit flies, and they didn't even get the joy of a party to justify their sleep deprivation. Well, I'm off to enjoy Milan, but I'll be back again tomorrow to wake up and open my mind. My name's Hannah Critchlow, and this is a special Naked Neuroscience episode from the Federation of European Neurosciences 2014 Forum, reporting in Milan. Uh -huh.